Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and, and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you want to find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey, and you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because, hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. Justin Angle, welcome to the Black Diamond Podcast. It's good to be here, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and if people can't tell by your voice, you're a podcast host as well. You have that uh, <laughs> podcast host voice. So I'm um, excited to have you on. It's always a pleasure to talk to other podcast hosts because you know, we kind of know what it's like to be on both sides of the mic. So it's, it's always a pleasure and really appreciate you coming on. I know you do a lot of things. Maybe give people a little bit of an introduction. You're, you work at a university. You're a podcast host. Mm -hmm. Give us a little bit of your background. How'd you get to where you are? Yeah. So I am, this is my third attempt at a career is what I tell students, but I'm a professor in the College of Business at the University of Montana. I teach marketing as my home discipline, but right now I'm teaching a class primarily for freshmen called the Business Safari which is a first point of contact for students at the university to what's going on in our college. I give them a sort of a broad overview of business and really try to explore ways where students can take advantage of the great opportunity that a college education presents. Through that work, I've been doing this podcast called A New Angle for about the last three years. We're actually about to celebrate our, our third anniversary. The tagline for that podcast is conversations with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. So we try to keep a focus on Montana, but occasionally cover topics and guests with a broader appeal as well. Yeah. In addition to that, I just love everything that Montana has to offer in terms of the outdoors. I'm an avid skier and cyclist and runner and just love getting into the mountains. So this has been, I've been here about nine years and this is a great home for me and the family. Awesome. Where did you guys move from to Montana? Yeah. So my wife and I met in college at the University of Pennsylvania. I grew up in New Hampshire. She grew up in Seattle, bounced around after college, spent some time in California and then back to Philadelphia, then Connecticut, Boston. And then I did graduate school in Seattle. Maggie, my wife, wanted to be closer to her family University of Washington had a great program and, and what I wanted to study. And so, yeah, we were in Seattle prior to getting the gig here in Missoula at the university. Interesting. And so you've been doing podcasting for three years. What was the impetus? Why, what made you want to start a podcast? Yeah. So a couple things. First, I was starting to just use them in class a lot more. Students just seemed more likely to engage in a podcast than do a reading. 
And at first I felt a little bit, I don't know, uncomfortable with that. Like I had this sort of judgy, oh, students must read. And then I was realizing that I wasn't reading as much as I was listening. And so I figured, why not try that? And assigning more podcasts, realized that the interview style shows in particular, we got really good retention of the concepts and students were able to talk about the ideas in a deeper way. And so... I was at the time exploring launching an online version of my course, and rather than doing videos, which a lot of folks tend to do for online education, I decided to build a podcast for the class and make it interviews. And as I started doing the interviews, I thought, wow, this is fun to talk to people and learn about what makes them tick and how they approach their work. But also, there's so many amazing people in the orbit of the university that it just seemed like these interviews might serve a broader audience. And if you've been following the University of Montana uh, for any period of time, you'd know that we could do a better job getting our message and our positive stories out there in the media. So it felt like an opportunity to shine a light on some of the great things happening at the University of Montana and around our ecosystem. And so, yeah, just started doing it on a weekly basis. Nobody said, don't do that or stop doing that. So it's been uh, persisting since, and I have a lot of fun doing it. That's great. Now, I'd like to touch on something you said, because it's something I think about every now and then, listening versus reading. And there seems to be, well, how do I articulate this? There seems to be this common belief that reading something is better, maybe more sophisticated, mm -hmm. right? more nurturing than listening to something. If I listen to an audio, like I've heard people at the time be like, yeah, I, I read five books a month. Sorry, actually, I have to admit I listen to them. It's shame. Yeah, it's like exactly. a weird thing. What's your take on that? I, I get, I, I do both. I read and I listen to podcasts and I listen to books and Blinkist and things like that. So I'm always consuming content. Personally, I feel like sometimes I get more out of listening than I do reading just puts me to bed. But I feel like I have to read because that's what the knowledge-seeking elitist do your take on that. <laughs> yeah, I tend to agree with you. As an instructor, I just want my students to get the ideas and to be able to grapple with them, whether that's through a video, whether that's through a podcast, whether that's through listening to a book or reading it. I just want the ideas to get consumed and to be thought about critically. I tend to think a lot of that stodginess that you ref that you reference sort of probably stems from just uh, you know, some gatekeeping functions, right? Like we, we have a whole system of education that starts with my daughters are in elementary school and they get graded on reading comprehension. They don't really get graded on listening comprehension. <laughs> they get disciplined on if they don't listen. So there's this kind of like cultural, I don't know, just calcification around these notions of, of what... Uh, true intellectual learning consists of. And I, th I think it's not necessarily nonsense, but a lot of it's gatekeeping function. And uh, I look at my role as an educator. If I can get those ideas, if I can get a student to, to engage with the ideas, I don't care how it happens. And yeah, it's important to be able to read and to go to source uh, documents and to do that kind of rigorous analysis and research. Sometimes that involves sources that you can only find in written form. But not all situations, not all situations require that. And to your point about Blinkist and Audible and listening, yeah, I reached that realization. I was listening to 
what's better to listening listen with some sort of fraction of focus to 20 books a year or to read and fall asleep while trying to read five a year that's where i was yeah that is an interesting question and i i look back to my college days when i played two sports that necessitated travel and going through sure. the business school at boston college wasn't easy and if i had the opportunity to listen to my homework maybe just as I'm on a bus ride somewhere or just walking around campus, it would have been huge, man. I really think I would have used it more often. And I think a lot of the students would have, of course, this is 1995 through 99 to date myself. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit different back then, but it would have been, it would have been great. It really would have been. Yeah. And, and it segues I, nicely, Justin. In, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And I think about it, our student body the University of Montana, probably a little bit different than the student body at Boston College or at more selective universities. And our students are, we pride ourselves in providing like accessible, affordable education. And what comes with that is a student body that is really quite committed in their time allocation. They're working multiple jobs to scrounge tuition. It's just the demands on their time are huge. And so maybe reading is just not an efficient use of time for a student that could engage in the ideas on the job or commuting or whatever through spoken word. And so I, I think of it a way to just like make the ideas more accessible and make the education more pragmatic for students. Yeah. That's, it's, it's so refreshing to hear a school and a professor come at it from the needs of the student in their individual framework of struggles and time and, and all of that. I think that's something that is rare from my experience, but I don't really know. I've never been in the, the university model. There is a really meaty topic that I, I'm dying to get into here. And we talked about before recording, Justin, is that the future of higher education. Mm -hmm. We're today's recording date, just so people know, is January 19th, 2021, the day before uh, the inauguration. If this is the last day, Justin, I'm glad we got to spend some time together. <laughs> yeah, time spent. Yeah. And so 2020 was disruptive in a lot of different areas, of course. Entertainment, travel, fitness industry, which I'm, you know, waist deep in, and higher education. And I, I understand that things have changed drastically and really fast, and you guys have had to adapt at probably way faster than anybody actually could. So walk us through maybe a little bit of what's happened for, for you and your life in the last, as far as your profession in the last year. And then where do you think this whole thing's going? Yeah, there, there's some big topics in there. You're right, Eric. You know, just a little bit of a TikTok for you. Like we were rapidly pushed into a largely remote delivery model starting in March of 2020 when the pandemic sort of started to really land in Montana, fortunately for us, it corresponded with spring break. So we were able to use that time to, to pivot quickly. And, and I think across the university, um, really proud of my colleagues across all the topics and disciplines efforts to do that. In fact, it shines a light on something that, that maybe is a silver lining in the sense that you know, institutions aren't really built to innovate quickly, but when we were forced to, we did. And I think there's a lot of learning to, to come of that. Now, that was rapid forced innovation. And now we're like, I don't know, 18 or so months into it, not quite 18 months, almost approaching a year into it. And they're starting to think about, okay, 
maybe there's an end in sight to this thing. And what does the world look like when we get out of it? You know, I think there's some macro forces that are going to persist. And those macro forces are continued pressure from employers to have employees that can do the job on day one, right? Our employers keep telling us we want students that can have these actionable skills and capabilities, whether it's coding or writing or different types of analyses or being able to run in in my space of marketing, being able to run particular types of ad campaigns. Like they want these sort of actionable skills on day one. Yet in the longer term, they want all those things that we associate with a comprehensive collegiate education, critical thinking, writing, written and verbal communication, all those sorts of things. So you, you need those skills to endure. And so colleges and universities need to be thinking about how do we prepare students for success on day one, but also position them to perform in a career that involves a lot more jobs than careers have in the past. The numbers of jobs that a student will have in their first 10 years far exceeds those numbers just a few years ago. And then you you layer on top of that, this whole notion of future of work. Like you mentioned, 2020 has been disruptive. Some people conceptualize that in terms of acceleration, like it's just accelerated so many trends. So trend towards automation, trend towards remote work trend toward the use of artificial intelligence. All these forces coalesce to create this world where the jobs of tomorrow are really hard to predict. And so how do you educate a student for a a workforce and an economy and jobs that we don't quite know what they look like? I think the upshot of that is you need to create people that are curious, that are interested in learning for their entire lifetime, and that are adaptable and flexible and willing and able to reinvent themselves. So yeah, higher education needs to confront all those things, but we also need to do it at a time when I think some of our structural challenges are really coming into focus is we have high fixed cost structures. We have these campuses, a lot of real estate and and those sorts of cost structures are under stress when not many, when not as many students are on campus. Obviously, students will probably come back. There's a great place for a residential collegiate experience, but maybe not everybody Maybe it's not for everybody. And so how do we think about a portfolio of students and and construct an institution that can meet the needs of that portfolio? I just free associated there a bunch, Eric, but these are, there's so many issues. Some of them are connected. Most of them are connected. And you're seeing a lot of universities try to grapple with this challenge in different ways, but it is a bit of a shakeout period in higher ed and competitors to universities, public universities in particular, are positioning themselves for, for some of this market as well. Yeah, there, there is, there's so much to unpack in that conversation. I mean, you look at my first thought this year was with higher education in many universities and colleges being $20,000 a year and, and way up, right? Like it's crazy how mm-hmm. much some of these universities cost and then they're doing it all remotely. Like how long is that going to last? And they're still charging full tuition for many of them. Yeah, um, And some even raise their prices. Whoa. Like what happens there? And then one of the things, because I, I actually think about this topic fairly often. I, I don't have kids, but we have ne- I have nieces and nephews who are now going to college or graduating high school and trying to figure it out, what they're going to do. And a lot of them are considering going to a craft school of some sort learning something very specific or taking the year or two in community college to figure it out. When you look at your the student base that you have and 
Do you think that a lot of people are going to college to simply get a degree and then figure it out afterwards? Or do you think many of them are going there with a specific purpose because they have intention once they graduate to use their degree for something in particular? How do you see that balance striking? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. I think some students go to college just out of inertia, right? It's what their parents did. It's what the kids in their high school and their friend cohort are doing. It's just the next step in the system, the progression. But I think considering that debt that you mentioned, more and more families are questioning that. And I think it's undeniable too that the political climate affects that as well. Higher education as a unit is moving to the left and that creates a problem. It creates a problem in terms of just ideological homogeneity within a campus, but also maybe to folks that don't share that political persuasion, higher education is viewed as a threat. Hey, those are or not as legitimate or something. I don't want to send my kid to college because they'll be exposed to ideas that I don't agree with or all, all those different things contributes to just an increasing sort of scrutiny on the expense and the time allocation. And if you can get a certificate or if you can get skills training that you can monetize immediately without taking on debt, that just provides different pathways into a career that didn't really exist before. And yeah, I'm not predicting that the four-year residential degree necessarily goes away. I think in my experience and probably your experience, it was a wonderful thing and it can be a wonderful thing. I would argue it should be a wonderful thing for so, for a lot of people, but it just can't be so prohibitively expensive. You have to think about ways to make it more accessible because simply just choosing not to go to college, I, I don't think is a wise choice. I think we're in this world where we need more education, whatever that looks like. We need more people learning and exposing themselves to new ideas. And I guess I would frame it this way. Higher education doesn't necessarily have an ingredients problem. We have a packaging problem. Like how do we take what we do and, and, and package it and deliver it in different creative ways that are, are more accessible and useful to more people? Justin, what do you think the, the repercussions would be if student loans were just no longer available? What do you no think longer available at all. Yeah. Yeah probably put a lot of universities out of business in the sense that if students can't get loans, they probably can't afford to go to, to universities. You probably see concentration of power at the top, like the, you know, the Princeton's, the Harvard's of the world that can afford to probably with the size of their endowments, not charge tuition in perpetuity, they would probably attract more market share. Um, although could they support that market share? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that would be hugely disruptive. If students can't find a way to finance this, then it's a real problem. The question I ask myself is, why do we structure the financing the way we do? Like, wh why do we charge this giant price up front when the student really has no ability to earn? Is there a way we can arrange the financing where the cost can get paid maybe later? at a time where the student's been able to achieve a, a level of career family security that, that that expense, the ability to pay back that expense is not at the expense of other kind of more necessary life expenses in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I asked my question. I can't remember where I heard that, that thought, but it's essentially a lot of this subsidized by 
college tuitions and one or uh, student loans. And one of the reasons sometimes these schools that are really expensive just keep racking up their rates. They invest more in their dining hall and making that really nice when it's not really, it's great for the experience, but it's not critical to the education. So it becomes bloated. And that's where they can get away with 60000 a year because they just tack on this huge bill that a student can't ever get off their balance sheet. It's an interesting thought. But then you look at it like, well, then the whole thing probably, yeah. if you get rid of student loans and a lot of it comes screaming to a halt for a while. Yeah, it's an interesting maybe. thought. Here's, here's a question yeah. for you, Although Justin. maybe... If you were... Yeah, if it, you, it, it, sure. If you were going to... Wipe the whole thing clean and start out a little bit on me there. Eric. And it was Can you just start over again, Eric? I yeah, we'll we'll get that edited out too. So the question I was going to ask you, and this is uh, the Justin Angle question, right? So if you, if this year everything, if you had a clean slate on university education or higher education, and it was your job to rebuild it from the ground, what would that look like? Wow, that's a big question. Yeah, let's take COVID. Let's take COVID and pandemic out of it. Let's assume a world where it's safe to bring people together. I, I think a way to structure higher ed would be some sort of in-person first-year experience. So bring a bunch of different types of students together into one place. Give them a, a re a re-engineered notion of general education. General education in its current iteration involves a ton of you know, humanities-oriented courses. I, I think some number of humanities-oriented courses should be retained. They should get grounding in sort of, sort of how ideas are, are formed, communicated, and, and expressed. But with that, also some technical skills, fluency with technology, understanding of how money operates in a society and in a business, some kind of actionable skills. And so after a single year, like then deploy students into some real world experience, whether that's a travel experience or an internship or some sort of co-op. And I don't know how many years you would have this pattern, but some sort of an oscillation between come to campus, immerse yourself in these ideas, swim around with different people and then go out in the wild and practice and then come back and then go out and maybe four years of something like that or certain numbers of years of something like that paired with this sort of opportunity to ha have a clear pathway to employment at the end. So maybe some of these off-campus experiences are with employers that like an active internship that a student goes back to over and over again. And by the time these repetitions are finished, there's a job waiting for that student. That that student has won by doing the work and contributing and preparing him or herself for. That would be my view. I think another way to think about it too would be like, don't just come for four years. Sign up for a 65-year subscription to a university. You're probably going to have 65 or so year career. You're going to need a lot of education during that time. Pay a subscription rate take whatever class you want whenever you need it and put it to work. And that's a fairly simple model, but I think it could be of great use. That would be really cool. Even just as someone's interest different, right? Like I've, when I, when things get back to normal, I have a strong desire to go back to culinary school, not because I want to be a chef, just because I want to learn because it's something that interests me. And then it becomes education becomes more of an interest thing because really 
when I was getting my college education, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. It just happens to be that I actually used a business marketing degree, which is great. But my interests have changed so many times that you're right. If you could have this subscription thing or this this community that you could go back to and learn a new trade or just something that you're really interested in, or be have a, a, a job in digital marketing, but you also want to learn maybe more about something that you're really excited about, like podcasting that isn't driven by your career. I think that would be really powerful and make for really solid communities as well. Yeah. It has to be like, we have so many hoops a student has to jump through and boxes they have to check in order to get a degree or a credential or a certificate or whatever you want to call it. And some of that is necessary as educators, we should have some say uh, over what, what you need in terms of your education. But we also got to be more progressive and listen to the customer. The student in many ways is the customer. I know that sort of analogy is fraught in many ways. Some people object to it, but ultimately it's the student who's paying the money, racking up the debt and trying to advance his or her career and life objectives. So we need to be more accessible. Like you said, culinary offerings, technical skills, Maybe you want to study art. Maybe you want to, I would love to go back and get a law degree once my children have moved through the household and I have, maybe I have a little bit more time, but just because I'm interested in it and, and I like the way that, that lawyers think and, and, and interact with, with debate. Yeah. Universities can, we have all this great product and we have to figure out a way to just allow folks to uh, tap into it more easily. I, I So with your current teaching situation? Are you guys having people in class now? Is it still all done remotely? What does it currently look like? Yeah, so we have a mix and it depends on a few things. One, like, first of all, what's the safest situation for the instructor and the students? And what are the learning objectives of the course? Does it really require in-person instruction? Some of my colleagues over in the health sciences, they do clinical rotations and labs and, and things like that really require in-person experiences. And they've, they've adapted and made those programs as safe as, as possible. In our programs in the College of Business, some classes are remote. My class tends to be larger. And so we don't have a room that can accommodate the number of students that I typically have in my class and abide by the social distancing guidelines. So my class is entirely on Zoom for this year. Other classes are able to have a, a hybrid model where some students are in the room and some students are connecting via Zoom. And we have technology in the room to facilitate that. Some classes have moved to a totally online asynchronous format so students can interact with the material and the instructor on their own schedule. And it's less tethered to, to scheduled meeting times and things like that. Like I mentioned before, there's been a ton of different adaptations and the good news is I think we're learning a lot about what it takes to hit the learning objectives. And some of this model will be retained and, and some will go back. I think I'm certainly hungry to get back in a classroom with people, but I understand that that doesn't work for all people in all situations. So the fact that we've developed these alternative ways to connect with students is, is good. And hopefully we can figure out ways to retain some of those things as we learn more about student preferences coming out of this. Yeah, that's interesting. What's been, uh, I guess, what's been an unexpected challenge of doing complete Zoom classes for you? 
I, and I, I don't know if this was unexpected. I think I, I didn't expect the severity of it. Just the ability to do what my coach in college called it the eyeball check. You can just look a student in the eye and, and have a pretty good sense of, is this student doing okay or not? And I know there's a lot of reasons why a message like that or a signal like that might be flawed or lead you astray or introduce all kinds of bias. But ultimately, I, I think having a sense for a student's well-being, whether it's in the class or outside of the class, it's just harder to do in Zoom. And so I'm having to spend more time trying to read the room, if you will, seek out alternative ways to communicate with students that that I, I don't get is, is I don't get that signal is directly through Zoom and, and you got to figure out other ways to get it. Has there been any technology besides Zoom that that you guys have have utilized? Like I had this really interesting guy who was on this show. He came in and, and did a uh, presentation on how to do sales presentations within the Zoom world and use the Lightboard. Have you seen the Lightboard? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Have you guys tried using that? It's pretty cool, right? Yeah. The Lightboards are really cool. I do a little bit with that when I am um, going in my class. Like I said, it's mostly freshmen. It's introductory. We do some basic business math stuff. We do some time value of money stuff. And, and working it up on the Lightboard is really useful. I know it's used extensively by my colleagues in accounting and finance who are teaching some of those fundamentals. And doing it on a Lightboard is super helpful. Yeah, I have a colleague as well, Jonathan Richter, who is involved with this organization called the Immersive Learning Research Network. And they have a virtual campus. And so it's pretty wild. You like construct an avatar and you go into the world and you can either do it just through a computer screen or you can do it through like virtual reality goggles. And it, it's just so much more efficient and it provides so many more just sort of layers and dimensions to communication that Zoom doesn't offer. So that's an exciting way. I haven't taught in that world yet, but I'm exploring it for future classes. So yeah, I think Zoom was a meeting software, a free meeting software. And, and, it, and the fact that it was free and it had a big installed base just meant that universities could jump on it and scale it quickly. But it's certainly not a, a platform that's designed to deliver education optimally. And so yeah. we're probably going to see all kinds of innovation in this space over the, over the... I mean, we're seeing it now and we're probably going to see who are the emergent winners in the years to come. Yeah, it's like I was alluding to earlier. I spent a lot of time in the fitness industry and still heavily involved in seeing in 2020 how all of a sudden investors, Ivy League types who never really paid attention to the fitness industry are now paying a lot of attention to it and yeah. having a lot of money in it. And any anywhere that there's a huge disruption happening, it's investors and innovation follows. And I can't imagine that VR is not going to be a huge part of the future of higher education or education at all. And I just imagine a situation where it's like, okay, you're learning about the Egyptian pyramids, but you could put on these Oculus glasses and you can actually be taught by a professor as you're walking around the pyramid. I'm just curious, is that happening? Is that future talk or is that happening now? 
I think some of it's happening. I, I don't use it in, in in my classes, but I think like what you said there, a history class, like how do you get students to engage and get excited about history? You bring it to life. And so that could be a really fantastic medium for doing that. I'm seeing it start to play out with, we have a college of physical therapy in our at our university and physical therapy is starting to be delivered in some cases through virtual reality if you can create a more immersive way and a more sensory way for a person to understand how his or her body operates in space, y- you can accomplish more as a physical therapist. And so it's an exciting sort of treatment modality for that, both in terms of patient outcomes, but also in terms of the education that goes into training the, the PTs of the future. So yeah, I think you're right. We're going to see more and more of it. And Probably in the business space, you're going to see it. First, there's going to be jobs in that space, people with the technical skills to program and create in virtual reality, but also people that understand the business implications and how to monetize it. And then probably I could see it playing out in in the sales realm, in the pitching realm, and, and maybe even in the HR realm, like how to have conflict resolution and mediation. You could use virtual reality for some of that. Maybe it can tone down really emotionally charged communications or eliminate some of the you know implicit bias that a lot of us operate or that that influence us outside of awareness just simply by the impression we get when we first see somebody so i i see a lot of implications yeah kind of reminds me of the the traditional way therapists use hand puppets right it's like <laughs> yeah exactly yeah old school avatar yeah. Yeah, exactly what is there any other is there any other technolo- technological advances that you see coming down the pipe for education as well? Well, I, I think just just delivery, right? Like the I, I love the on campus experience. Campus when there's students all over the place, it's just such a wonderful place to be. It's why I'm a professor. I love being in this type of environment around ideas and around young people that are trying to just trying to invest in themselves and their life and their improvement. Uh, I hope that kind of piece of higher ed sticks around for certainly for as long as I'm around and as long as my kids around and their kids, et cetera. But I do, to answer your question, Eric, I do think like there has to be way that model is not accessible to everyone. Not everyone can do that. And we need to think about using technology to make it more accessible. Can we get some fraction of the experience delivered in a less expensive, more accessible way? That's how I think higher ed should be thinking about where to spend on tech. Yeah. Interesting. Justin, you gave us lots to think about today, man. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I admire, but don't envy how you and your colleagues have had to adapt over the last year. Um, I'd imagine it must be stressful and not only having to so quickly pivot to this, the medium of, of video and conferencing, but also having to deal with the pandemic on your own personal lives. That's uh, That's been a challenge for most people as well. So um, just, I don't know, man. Hey, we got your back. Keep up the great work. <laughs> we'll all figure this out together somehow. But yeah, Justin, sure. if you might give us some, give us the goods, man. Where do people go to find you online, your podcast, all that good stuff? Sure. You can find me through the University of Montana website. You know, just go there and search on Justin Angle and you'll get to my faculty page. 
But probably uh, the more accessible piece is my podcast. It's called A New Angle. So a little play on uh, my last name there. And you can find us. We're on all the podcast players, but our website is anewanglepodcast.com. You can find us there. New episodes come out every Tuesday. So check them out. We'd love to have you with us. How many episodes have you done so far? I think we're, I think today's episode was number 171. Nice. So pretty much every Tuesday for coming up on three years now. That is a large and growing body of work, man. I, I appreciate it very much. I know it's getting guests and, and getting all the information, getting the editing, getting it out there. That's a ton of work. Way to go, man. Really appreciate well, it. The drill yourself and you're doing a great service for your audience as well. I appreciate that. Justin, thank you for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, Justin Angle. Hey, everybody. This is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, If you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it. Whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be, I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, Make an introduction, whatever it may be. You can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just want to chat, you want to find out more, if you want to expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond podcast and you can expect a lot more from us.